So Matthew 21, verse 12, says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My host shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And he said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. And we'll stop there and I'll pray before I continue. Lord, again, as we turn to your word, we just ask your blessing and your help. Um, I just ask that you would guide my, my thoughts, my words this morning, that the things that I would say would be an encouragement in some way, um, and that the truth of your word would be proclaimed this morning, Lord. So we just commit this time again to you and ask again for your help as we continue, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was going to try turning this mic on again. Apparently we need to change the battery on that one. <laughs> so I won't bother. Um, so this passage, I don't know if this happened more than once. I think it did, and I was going to look, and I forgot to go and, and kind of search that out a little bit. But this passage matches up very closely with a similar passage in uh, John chapter 2. This is a, appears to be at the end of Jesus' ministry. <laughs> and presumably John chapter 2 would put it near the beginning of his ministry. And things aren't always recorded chronologically, so they could be recording the same event, just placed it at a different place in, in the books. Um, but I actually kind of feel like he may have done this more than once. And my, my memory doesn't serve. I, I can't remember if John actually records it twice. That was, that's what I was going to look for, but I, I'm not sure on that one. If it is recorded twice in one book, obviously it happened more than once. <laughs> but I wasn't 100% sure on that. But I think it did. And interestingly, when you look at John, chapter 2, it records that Jesus made a scourge of cords. He made a whip. <laughs> and he goes in to the area of the temple, and he's tossing tables, and what's a whip for? <laughs> it's <laughs> it wasn't for cleaning the tables, right? He's clearing this place out, and he's chasing the people out, calling them names. This is not the Jesus that we see proclaimed in most of Christian circles these days. I saw another article this week written to pastors condemning church leaders who promote war. And I wouldn't say I don't promote war. I'm not in favor of 
Canada building an army and invading the states to try to take over the states. Or it's not likely to happen, but <laughs> you know what I mean, right? That's not, the most Christian leaders would never promote war in that way. I suppose religious leaders have done that in the, throughout history. But as a Christian leader, I would certainly, if there is something going on and, well, and there was a need to go to war to right a wrong, to stop some evil from taking place, whether in our country or elsewhere, I wouldn't fully in favor of joining and fighting that battle. But a lot of Christians are very much against that, that whole idea of violence. Um, and a lot of Christians are very much thinking that we are supposed to be pacifists. Jesus wasn't a pacifist. <laughs> we certainly don't see that in this passage. And so we need to understand some of the words that Jesus says versus some of the actions that we see in him. And we also need to put that together with the rest of Scripture and understand what Scripture tells us in various circumstances. And Romans 13... It's been a popular passage these last couple of years for some reason. But I'm going to turn there if you want to go with me to that just for a moment. I want to look at an aspect of that that's actually important for us to, to understand. So in Romans 13, I'll just start in verse 1 and read um, the whole, this whole section here. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. God has ordained Leadership, civil leadership, is put in place to maintain good. We have police forces, and we expect them to carry a gun, which is the modern-day version of a sword, right? We expect them to carry weapons so that they can effectively uphold the law, and they bear not the sword or gun in vain. It's, it's there to be used. In the circumstance that requires its use, we expect that officer to use the appropriate force. And if that requires shooting a person and taking their life to protect the safety of others, to stop some evil action from taking place, 
then that's the appropriate thing for them to do. And if that's a Christian, and I, we know many Christians who are police officers, that's appropriate for them to take a life in that circumstance. We have no issue, most people have no issue with that, but some, some people do. And the same would hold true, and you go up in levels of government, and now we have a military, and it's the same principle. And we can, as a soldier, go to war and take many lives and do it justly based on this passage, that God has put those rulers there, and our prime minister isn't the one pulling the trigger, right? <laughs> He's the one that gives the command for the soldiers to go and fight this battle. It's our kids, right? As they grow up, they're the ones going to fight those battles when the time comes. And so, I think I just, I don't I, I, I've never paid attention to draft, like military draft regulations, but I think I heard this week it was like 18 to 30 something years old. I'm like, I'm past it. <laughs> I don't have to go. <laughs> but I never thought I'd be, I don't feel like I'm too old. <laughs> but, <laughs> but apparently I'm too old. But anyway. Um, but these instructions are given in Scripture for a purpose. And there's a time and a place for violence. And Jesus, in this passage, uses violence. I need to pay attention to what my own notes say about this. Um, there is a passage somewhere, and it says... Hmm. I don't know where it is, but it says... <laughs> Well, maybe I didn't even write it down. That Jesus, oh, I didn't write it down. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin. In Ephesians, there's also a passage that says, be angry and sin not. I would say Jesus is angry. <laughs> when he walks into the temple and he sees these guys buying and selling and doing all these things, for the reaction that he has, when you start throwing things, if someone was to walk into the church and start knocking pews over and kicking stuff and chasing people out and grabs some book or some, and starts wailing on, like, there's no other way to describe that, as, but they're angry. Jesus is angry, but it, scripture is clear, he did not sin. If Jesus sinned, he could not have paid for our sin. He would have had to have been paying for his own sin, right? And so it's essential that we understand that Jesus never, ever sinned. But he's doing this angry, violent act. <laughs> Maybe more than once. 
Jesus didn't have to repent of doing that. He didn't have to go back and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Can you imagine that? That's, we do that a lot, don't we? <laughs> we, we get into arguments and we have reactions and responses that are not appropriate and we frequently have to, or at least should, go back to somebody and tell them we're sorry for the way we acted, right? It's, that's normal for us. But Jesus did this, and he did not have to say he was sorry. He did not have to repent of his actions. He was absolutely correct in his response to the circumstance. Interestingly, and I was trying... I didn't sleep much last night, so I preached this multiple times overnight. <laughs> and I start coming up with new, new ideas as, as you're thinking this through, and it's dangerous. And so this morning I'm here trying to find this passage. And I finally did find it. It's in Deuteronomy 14. Let's actually, let's go there. It's just for the sake of interest. Deuteronomy chapter 14. So, so far, I haven't used any of my actual notes. <laughs> we'll get to something there. Deuteronomy 14, um, starting in verse 22. says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose to place his name there. And that would be at the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. The tithe of thy corn, of thy wine, of thine oil, and the firstlings of thy herds and of thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God always. And if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, then shalt thou turn it into money, and bind up the money in thine hand, and shalt go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, and thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. Now what's the point? <laughs> he made a provision, at least in the tithing, and I thought it was sacrifices, but this is specific to tithing. If you have a tithe, then you need to bring that to offer before God at the temple. And it's too far to pack this stuff up and carry it there. He made a provision that you can sell that stuff at home Take the money, go to Jerusalem, to the temple, and buy replacements. To me, what the, is happening in the temple, where Jesus went and tossed these tables over, is actually, there's a provision for that in the law. Isn't that interesting? So it's not that they were 
actually breaking the law by doing the thing that they were doing. But he makes the point, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now it's a money-making thing, right? We're, we're making a profit off of people's tithes and their offerings. That's not the purpose. <laughs> the purpose was to give to God, not for the greedy preacher, the greedy, greedy priests, or whoever is in there doing this, to make a business of it and making a profit at it. And so it's the whole way they approached it is what was wrong, not what they were doing specifically. I just thought that was good for us to know. Now, as far as... Violence, and we've looked at a couple of examples already with law, you know, law enforcement and soldiers. Clearly, scripture, even New Testament scripture, supports that action, and we're certain that Jesus wasn't um, committing a sin and doing wrong by this violent action that he's got. I think we need to understand some of who Jesus really is, we need to understand the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed from one to the other. This is still the same God, the same character. He says, I change not. (laughs) He is exactly the same God. And so people often look at the God of the Old Testament is this violent, angry vengeful God like we see him killing people he's killed when when they set up the initial tabernacle and the sacrifice system and set up the priesthood with Aaron and his two sons and the two sons offered the wrong thing before God and he killed them on, on the spot what a horrible angry God right well that's how people view this and the God of the New Testament would never do something like that you better step sideways quickly to avoid that lightning bolt, right? It's like, we are under God's grace and his mercy that he doesn't do the same to us for all of the rotten, stupid, sinful, idolatrous things that we do in the name of serving God. We are very wrong in a lot of the things that we do. And we need to check that sometimes and realize that just because God hasn't struck us dead doesn't mean he's okay with it. (laughs) He's just by his mercy that he's allowing us to live through some of these things that we do that are wrong and that's his mercy. That's it. His, His character is still the same. His requirements are still the same. And there will be judgment on sin and wrongdoing in the end. It's still going to be judged. Sometimes it's just not as instantaneous. We like the, I like the example of David in the Old Testament. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Um, in, in 1 Samuel, we see, um, we get Saul was the king. God had chosen him, and he's this great, tall, strong, 
wonderful guy, and he didn't follow God properly. And so God said, I'm going to take the kingdom from him. And he's using Samuel as a prophet, and he sends Samuel to go to anoint the person who's going to replace Saul. And he does not know who he's going to anoint. And so God sends him to the host of Jesse. And he calls all his sons for a dinner. And Samuel goes to this dinner, and he goes before all these sons of Jesse, who are big, strong lads. And he goes to the one, and in his mind, he's saying, surely this is God's anointed. But God's response says, in, it's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And God, he goes through every kid that's there, and God says he's not here. And so Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you got another kid somewhere? <laughs> and David's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And well, there's one more. This is the, the scrawny runt out in the field. <laughs> he's like, I'll bring him here. And that's the one. And he was a man after God's heart. First um, Samuel 13, verse 14 says, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. This is to Saul. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And so this is God searching for a man after his own heart. And that is how David gets described. But you know, David's not quite all we cry. <laughs> we praise him for all. You know, he wrote half of the book of Psalms. He's so full of praise to God. He's got such a great attitude towards God. He calls to God in his time of need. He's like, poor me, poor me, but I will still praise God. He knows not to dwell on his circumstance, but to look to this eternal, wonderful God that's going to bless him in eternity. And so he does that. But in 2 Samuel, I'm not going to take all the time to, to read the whole passage, but 2 Samuel chapter 11, and most of us would know this story of David and Bathsheba. And David, we were talking about this just recently, um, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, It's at the time when kings go forth to battle. But David is at home. <laughs> and he ends up, up on the rooftop and looks out and sees Bathsheba washing herself. This is at the time when kings go forth to battle. David's army is off fighting a battle at this very moment. Bathsheba's Husband is off fighting in that battle. David fell into sin with, in adultery at a time when he should have been oh, killing people. 
doing what's right is out killing people for David at that moment. And his sin stemmed from not doing what he was supposed to be doing at that time. If he was out fighting a battle like he ought to have been at that time, fighting against the Israel, uh, the enemies of Israel, or the enemies of God, he would have not have had this temptation and fallen into this sin with Bathsheba. David was supposed to be doing violence. <laughs> there is a Ecclesiastes. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. I don't know what. There it is. Ecclesiastes 3. I have a feeling there was a certain band that took this passage and turned it into a song of sorts. It says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. And that's sort of the end of that section, but there is a time of war and there's a time of peace. There's a time to break down. <laughs> there's a time for violence. There's a time, as a Christian, I need to be willing to do violence. And it's not necessarily sinful to do that. Most people would point to Matthew chapter 5. I'll turn there and read it. Matthew 5, verse 39. says, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek... Turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward of ye? 
Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Jesus says to turn the other cheek. To really what he's saying here is we need to be willing to let ourselves be treated poorly. If I'm defending myself or my honor, that's just my own pride. <laughs> All he's describing here is me defending my own pride, not letting myself be defrauded in some way. And what he's saying is, if it's personal against you, that is not the time for violence. Me as a Christian, if I'm being persecuted as a Christian, I am not to violently defend myself. If someone... And we, we see in history all the martyrs who have died for their faith, and they refused to lift a finger to defend themselves. That is the fulfillment of this passage, and that is the exact right way to respond to this passage. Ecclesiastes says there is a time for peace, and there is a time for war. There's a time for us to defend and there's a time for us to allow ourselves to, to be beaten or to be used or abused in some way. And we need to be able to differentiate between the two. I'm not sure this is a, a right application or the intent of, of the passage, but in Romans 15, verse 1, it says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. <laughs> now, it, says, it just starts, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I see that pointing, and this is sort of a spiritual application, but I think it can be applied in the physical world as well, is when the weak are being persecuted, when someone who can't defend themselves is being mistreated. Men, if you're walking to your car someday and you see somebody, some woman being abused down the alley or across the parking lot, or you better not turn your back and get in your car and drive away. If you're capable of defending that person, you ought to defend that person. There's an appropriate time to use violence, is when somebody who can't defend themselves and evil is being taken upon them, we ought to stand up 
be violent against that action. That's an appropriate time. We are supposed to stand for what's right. We are supposed to oppose evil. And we can extrapolate that. We've, we've been talking kind of about that in our own country and some of what's been going on over the last couple of years. And as a Christian, there is a time for us to stand against evil. And even when the majority doesn't even see the evil as being evil, if it's evil, if we understand it to be evil, we need to be willing to stand up against it. And it's appropriate to do that in that circumstance. Jesus, in um, the Last Supper, which we... Um, I'm just going to go to uh, Luke chapter 22, if you want to follow me there. But in that Last Supper, which our communion table is representing, at the end of that meal, when they get up to, to leave, there's something that we don't often repeat takes place there. So Luke 22, verse 36. And if I read just the, the part before, it says, in verse 34, it says, And, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. As in they lacked nothing. It's not that they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword... Let him sell his garment and buy one. Jesus, at one point, commanded the disciples to go out and do ministry and don't take anything. Take no provisions. Just trust that God is going to provide through other people taking care of you. And he did it. He says, that moment is over for now. <laughs> and now, when you go out, you need to take your extra stuff. You need to take the bag with some supplies. And by the way, if you don't have a sword, you need to sell something and buy one. You need to carry a sword. Why in the world would Jesus' disciples need to carry a sword if they're following what he taught in Matthew 5 to turn the other cheek and to love their enemies? Isn't Jesus contradicting himself in doing that? No, he's not. There is a time to turn the other cheek. And when that's defending my honor, I'm not to do that. When I'm just fulfilling my own pride, which is what we're doing most of the time, when we get in a scuffle with somebody and get in an argument, when we get angry, most of the time that's our pride. That how dare you say that I'm wrong? <laughs> how dare you correct me? How dare you do drive down the road and cut me off, right? Inconvenience me in some way. How dare you turn without using your signal light? People get in literal fist fights over this stuff. That's, there's no righteousness in this. <laughs> but when it comes to defending the weak and the poor and the helpless, 
we're to do those things. There is a time. And Jesus seems to contradict himself, right? Because he, at one moment, he says, well, turn the other cheek. And the other time, he says, you better pack a sword. <laughs> there's, a t- there's a time to defend. There's a time to take a violent action. It's not all just about being a pacifist all the time. And just the, being a Christian isn't about being a doormat. <laughs> and we seem to get the impression often that that's what we're supposed to be. Just let people walk all over us and never do anything about it and never say a word. And that's, that's, not, that's not the Jesus that we see <laughs> in Scripture. Jesus was never a doormat in any way, shape, or form. He stood up and argued and called people serpents to their face. Religious leaders, that's like, if Jesus is standing here and I'm saying something wrong, he's going to stand up in front of all of you and call out what I'm saying and call me a viper, a serpent. Like, that's calling you a devil. (laughs) You're a son, a child of Satan. And he literally called people that. That's not exactly the doormat, friendly, let's love everybody to Jesus gospel that we hear talked about so much. Jesus is no doormat whatsoever. If there's something wrong, he would say and call out what was wrong. And if violence was needed, like at this moment in the temple, when his anger flared up over the evil that people were doing against God, he stood up against it. And he fought against it to stop it. That's the Jesus of the Bible. When we picture Jesus, there's so many images of Jesus on the cross and all these pictures. And it's this skinny, scrawny gang, like someone that looks like me. and I don't think Jesus was that man <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. I think Jesus was raised doing manual labor. Joseph was a carpenter. Carpentry today, and I, I don't know if like carpentry is often thinking of woodworking, right? Like we're building furniture and things like that. Well, we go out in our shop and we do woodworking, and there's a table saw and the thickness planer, the jointer, the band saw. If we want to shape in a piece of board cut, we got a machine to do it. I've got the, the band saw mill outside. I get the log in the yard. I take my backhoe and I lift the log up and I place it on the sawmill and start the motor and it slices it off. And the machine carries it often to where I want to use it. And I got other machines to, to finish, do all of the actual work for me. (laughs) None of that existed for Jesus. (laughs) He was probably cutting down the tree, splitting it, sawing it, planing it by hand, doing all... I bet you that guy had some muscles on his body. (laughs) I bet you when he picked up that cord to chase these religious... They're the the scrawny, wimpy ones, right? (laughs) 
the, my entire life, I've looked at preachers and they're the biggest bunch of pansies I've ever seen. Like, I would never ask most preachers I've ever met in my life to go help me do some kind of manual labor. <laughs> I was like, okay, just go sit down. I'll do it myself. <laughs> that's, that's how I see most preachers. And that's not, like, okay, they're, if their job is to sit at a desk and study, well, fine, that's, that's your job. But that's not what Jesus was. <laughs> Jesus was a man. He's like, we call roughing it. We go camping for a few days and we'll sleep in a tent and we take our air mattress and our inflatable pillow and our nice sleeping bags and we're as comfortable as you could possibly get without being inside of a house with all the stuff, right? Jesus wandered. <laughs> he's like, I have no, when someone wanted to follow him, he's like, well, I have no bed. I don't have a house. I don't have a pillow. We just walk and we sleep where we are. <laughs> He's sleeping under the stars a lot of the time. He's, he was roughing it. This is not a wimpy man. This is a man. <laughs> we don't have a lot of men in our world anymore. But Jesus was one. And he was no wimp in any way, shape, or form. And as a follower of him, that's the example that we're to follow, is we're to stand against evil. The spoken, we're to open our mouth and proclaim it as evil. When, when wrong teaching is being taught, I hope I don't do it, but if, if I'm like wrong, and you know I'm wrong, you actually need to stand up and tell me I'm wrong. To my face. Don't just go talking in the back room about it. You need to confront the person who's wrong and tell them they're wrong. That's who Jesus was, and we need to follow that example. We don't need to be a doormat and let the world walk all over us and everyone else. We, we are to stand up for our family. There's a 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 says, If a man provide not for his own, he's worse than an infidel, and he's denied the faith. As a man, I'm supposed to be a provider, which also means that I would protect what's mine, my family, um, to the best of my ability to prevent harm from coming to them. That's, if I didn't prevent harm, then I'm not providing, am I? Providing is twofold thing. It's like bringing it in, but also preventing it from <laughs> being taken away. We need to be that. This passage interestingly ends with these people, these chief priests and scribes, rather upset with what they see going on, obviously. And in verse 16, it says, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never heard, read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. <laughs> it's like, we've, back a couple of chapters, we looked at this passage um, that you must come as a little child. And just believing. It's like, what a, what a odd 
switch in <laughs> what's going on, right? But he just points like, these people just believe me because they see, <laughs> they see what he's saying or they hear what he's saying, they see what he's doing and they know that he is the Christ. And yet the religious leaders completely denied him, ended up having him crucified, right? But Jesus, notice, he didn't defend himself. <laughs> he defended others in many circumstances. He prevented harm from coming to the woman that was caught in adultery. <laughs> he didn't use violence. He didn't need to use violence. He just outwitted those that brought her, but he still prevented it. He protected her. And he did that in many circumstances. But he didn't defend himself because that was his purpose, was to give himself. And so we're to follow that. We'd be willing to accept reproach on ourselves, but not on others who aren't able to defend themselves. Anyway, we'll close with that. Let's pray.